Hello and welcome to season two of the HLET podcast by the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a three-year-old Harvard Law School and I'm your host. The season of the HLET podcast is made possible by our sponsors, Femic and West, Oric, and Cooley. You're joining us in the second half of our season where we learn about lawyering in a recession and lawyering in emerging industries. On today's episode, we speak to Mike Lincoln, the vice chair of Cooley. Mike discusses how venture-backed companies are navigating our current bear market and how the cycle compares to previous downturns. Mike also gives us excellent insight into what it takes to succeed as an emerging companies and venture capital lawyer. If you're interested in practicing in this space and representing founders, this episode is for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app and subscribe to stay up to date for the latest episodes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the HLEP Podcast. Hello, Ben. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well, and I'm very excited to have you on today to talk to us about running a VC-backed company in a recession. So let's start by having you introduce yourself. Can you tell us about how you got here doing what you do? Sure. I've been practicing law for over 30 years, and um, I started uh, after clerking on the Seventh Circuit in Chicago after law school. I started at Latham & Watkins, where I was doing primarily private equity transactions for Carlisle and, and other uh, private equity firms. And this was in the 90s when the technology market in the Washington, D.C. area where I live was really starting to take off. And so I was drawn to that and uh, decided I would, would make a move into a venture capital style practice and ended up mm-hmm. opening uh, an office for Cooley based in Palo Alto. But it was the first East Coast office of of a Silicon Valley based firm. And so this was in 1999. This was the dot-com era when the market was, was very strong. And so along with uh, Joe Conroy, we, we opened this office and it grew very rapidly uh, until the downturn hit in 2000, 2001. But I've been at Cooley ever since. And um, my practice is focused on emerging companies and venture capital. And uh, in addition to that practice, I also serve as the vice chair of the firm. Oh, wow. So just real quickly, you said uh, you opened this office. You said it was Palo Alto or was it on the East Coast? No, the firm was based and is based in Palo Alto, but at the time, firms like Cooley were very West Coast centric. None of the uh, the Bay Area firms had launched on the East Coast at that time, mm. and so we ended up speaking with several of the firms that are based in the Bay Area, and we decided that Cooley was a good fit, and they decided we would be a good fit, and so we launched that office in the Washington D.C. area in nineteen. 19- Oh, wow. So it started at Washington, D.C. In the, on the yeah. East Coast. Oh, very interesting. Well, you know, I, so my follow-up to this is, you know, not every day we get to speak to a vice chair of a law firm. So what does a day in the life look like for you as vice chair of Cooley? So before I was the vice chair, I was the head of the business department. And like a lot of law firms, um, you know, you have these department structures, litigation and business would, would be uh, the way we're set up. And so I was helping to oversee uh, the different practice groups that roll up to the business department. So that would be capital markets and mergers and acquisitions and public companies and venture capital and fund formation and the like. Mm-hmm. And after uh, doing that for a while, we uh, decided that it would be good to, to uh, create a vice chair role in the firm. And so I, I work on a number of different strategic initiatives mm-hmm. and serve on the, the board of the firm and serve on the compensation committee of the firm. But one of the things I've been very focused on over the last 15 years is um, recruiting, lateral recruiting. So bringing in uh, partners uh, from other firms typically, and also launching new offices. So I've been involved in launching eight or nine offices in that 15 year run. So having helped with the launch of an office here in Washington, DC, I was very involved in in the launch of a number of other offices in the US and, and globally. Wow, so a lot of strategic initiatives. Um, so I'm curious to hear how much of your day-to-day involves legal practice versus these, you know, strategic management of the firm decisions. Do you have like a percentage breakdown? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's about 50, 50 between practicing and, uh, the firm role, Mm. but, uh, really, uh, for most, um, lawyers at large firms, it's, it's probably divided up a little bit differently than, than that. And so mm-hmm. a big part of what you do day to day is, is business development, you know, chasing new business. Another part of it is client relations. So not necessarily practicing law, but 
managing relationships, staying in touch with clients. And, and then, then there's the actual practice of law, doing transactional work and the like. And then there's the firm administration or leadership piece. So it's really four buckets. Wow. And, so, and so for me, uh, it's probably, you know, 25% for each of them. Um, but, but, but again, for, for me day to day, a big part of what I do is helping, um, with firm oversight and strategy. And the other part is managing clients and, and transactional work. And I still love what I do. Um, doing the same thing for, as I say, for over 30 years. And I love working with entrepreneurs and with investors and these highly, disruptive companies. And so uh, I don't want to um, move away from practicing law and working with interesting companies. And so I actually really relish the opportunity every day to jump in and help uh, entrepreneurs grow and build their companies. Wow. Okay. It's very good to hear. And I'd love to go there and ask you, you know, so you talked to us a little bit about the start of your career and how you got here. How did you decide on this practice area and, and your and discover your love for helping entrepreneurs? Was this something that you just knew at the beginning or something you developed along the way? So I've always been um, very intrigued uh, with business and entrepreneurship. So even though I went off and clerked uh, on the Seventh Circuit in Chicago, I really, I knew I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And while I enjoyed the large transactional work and the private equity work and, and public securities work, uh, it just struck me that it would be a better fit if I were able to um, marry up my interest in entrepreneurship and technology with a practicing law. And so I had been, you know, in a small way, I'd been an entrepreneur myself a few times. I'd have, I had a few small businesses, um, you know, back in, in high school and, and in wow. college. Uh, you know, I started a bicycle rental business and, you know, when I say small business, I mean truly small business, but, <laughs> uh, but I, but I, uh, I, I was drawn to that. And, um, when I had the opportunity in the nineties to help launch the Cooley office, it really was a perfect fit. Um, because this is a firm that is deeply embedded in that sector mm. and the kind of firm that, um, allows people like me to go take a chance on young companies before they're funded. And it's a certain type of firm that embraces that business model. So it's been terrific. And I, I absolutely love the fact that there's a real meritocracy with entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say over half of the founders that I work with are first or second generation immigrants, for example. And so they are an incredibly interesting group. They're scrappy and hungry. They're grateful. And so for me, the chance to lock arms with, with people who start companies, who take a risk, who take a gamble is um, it's just it's incredibly rewarding. You know, by way of example, I work with a founder It's now in his third company, but he went to Harvard mm -hmm. Law School and uh when he got and his parents were immigrants, and when he got out of law school, the first thing he did was he started a company, and his parents were very upset. Uh, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I remember meeting with them, and uh, they wanted him to go, you know, work at a big law firm or do something uh, safe and secure and rewarding. And so he started the company. But anyway, we sold that company for over a hundred million dollars, wow. and we just sold his last company for over a billion dollars. Uh, so his parents are no longer uh, <laughs> no longer fretting about the fact that he chose mm. to uh, go the non-traditional route, even though he had a law degree from from an Ivy League school. And so that's just one example of how we get a, sort of a front row seat to uh, working with these fascinating risk takers mm. who start uh, disruptive companies that you know bring new technologies to market and create jobs. And so it's very, it's very rewarding. And uh, in addition, Ben, we get to be more than just a lawyer. We get to be, you know, a consigliere, a Sherpa, you know, climbing mm -hmm. the mountain. And we get to, to walk side by side with entrepreneurs, you know, as they try to climb mountains and, and they don't always succeed. We obviously see a lot of heartbreak and failure in our business mm -hmm. too, but it's, it's really, um, gratifying to be invited along for that journey. And so uh, 
the people that we get to work with become our friends. And um, we value these relationships. And as I say, they are um, incredibly um, interesting, um, hardworking, diligent people. And so it's, uh, it's, it's very different than the, than the type of practice that I, I used to do 30 years ago. Wow. It's very exciting to hear the passion in your voice for this. So a lot to look forward to for everyone here who's interested in ECVC work. So speaking of which, I'm really excited to pivot to our, the meat of our episode. Our episode today is titled Running a VC-backed company in a recession. And we covered the investor's perspective on a previous episode. And today we're going to cover the founder or company side perspective in bear markets, right? So let's start with learning about what's generally happening out there today. What are you seeing from your current clients in the space? And you know, what's the good, the bad, the ugly? Well, I think you have to consider whether a company's already raised money uh, mm-hmm. or is trying to raise money. If a company in, in a down market, uh, capital is is tougher uh, to to come by, and so we saw this in two thousand two thousand one. We saw it again in two thousand eight two thousand nine. You know, for better or worse, we've been on this incredible economic run for over a decade, and money's been quite readily available to entrepreneurs. Uh, candidly, it's been much easier to raise money and to raise money at a much stronger valuation with less dilution to the founders. That that's changed dramatically in the last year, but there is good news. Uh, but so the, the good news is that there's a lot of capital that's been raised that needs to find a home, and mm. so there are funds out there looking to deploy capital. It's just um, slower and and harder, and and valuations are lower, and terms are tougher. Mm. But there's lots of capital that's been raised. That's number one. Number two, we all know the uh, mantra that building a company in an economic downturn is the best time to build a company. And there's various reasons for that, but there are many incredible success stories that came out of 2001 mm-hmm. or 2008 in those last downturns. You know, um, labor has been uh, people, uh, human mm-hmm. capital has been very hard to come by the last few years in a tight market. And it's just one example. It's a lot easier to find engineers and data scientists and others that you need to attract to help you grow your company. Um, and, and other resources that companies rely on are just all more readily available on town. So it's, it's, it's widely considered a great time to be building a company as long as you can attract capital. Mm. And, and the competition does fall off, right? So the, the, the truth be told, in a frothy market, lots of companies get funded. And in a softer market, fewer companies get funded. So if you're one of the lucky companies to raise capital, it's not that there's no competition. There's always competition in any in any business worth pursuing. It's mm. just that there is not this sort of frenzy of activity in, in almost any space or any sector. So back to your question, Ben, about you know what companies should be doing. If you've already raised capital, the truth be told, almost all companies have pulled back on expenses and it's all about managing your cash and extending your runway mm. as you would expect. And so I would say, you know, I, I go to a lot of board meetings every week and I don't have any companies uh, that are not in cash conservation mode at some mm. level. Um, and this is a business that's all about top line revenue. It's all about the land grab. It's all about building uh, market share. Um, and you worry about sort of profitability later, but, mm. but it is about, in any high growth disruptive business, it's about making sure you're one of the winners. And as we often say, Ben, mm. in any space, there's often a gold medal, a silver medal, and a bronze medal. And in this business, you need to be a medalist to be a winner. I mean, there there aren't if there's 20 companies that get funded in a particular space, you know, there's only a few that become an Uber or a Lyft, if you will. And so that that's the way the business operates. If you are starting a company and you're not yet funded, uh, it's a different story. And you're going to have to be much scrappier um, to raise seed capital, particularly if you're pre-revenue, pre-customer, pre-product, pre-launch. It's tougher. But as I say, lots of capital has been raised. And so you have to come up with a bespoke, targeted investor list. So you've got to really think this through. And you got to lean on your network and advisors to get to angel investors or family offices or seed funds. So if you're trying to raise money for the first time, typically these days we see companies raise, you know, a million or two, some some more modest amount of capital 
to get going and you just need to go in warm you mm-hmm. you when you're trying to attract capital you you can't it's it's very very difficult to do that if you go in cold without a, a warm introduction mm-hmm. and it's it's all about identifying the right people that have domain knowledge that like the space um, and if if you can work your own network or relationships or friends and family, then all the better. But if you're not one of those people that that has friends and family that you can lean on for seed capital, you're just going to have to be very vigilant and resourceful about getting in front of the right people. Mm. So it still sounds like there's capital out there, but you're going to probably have to do more legwork to go get this and you have to be more meticulous about your approach. So you you already started talking to us about this. I'd love to hear more of you, anything to add, but how do these current challenges affect clients across, you know, the stages of a corporate life cycle? Say, you know, a founder trying to find financing at seed stage, are they affected differently from someone in the series D financing stage? Well, so Ben, the conventional wisdom, which is true, is it's actually almost easier um, if you're early stage or later stage, what I mean by that is, let's just say you're, I, I have companies that are, you know, doing hundred million in revenue. They've raised a lot of capital. They're waiting for the, you know, IPO capital markets to reopen. They're just fine though, in the sense that they have a real business with real revenue. Yes. They're managing cash. Yes. They're waiting for the window to open back up either for a large M&A or private equity transaction or an IPO. But, but at some level, if you get to that size and scale you're you're onto something you're you're going to be one of the winners and it's a it's sort of a timing issue to some degree um at the earlier stage again if you if you're you're onto something that's compelling and you've assembled the right team and and you you can get in front of the right investors and raise some seed capital by the time you get hopefully to sort of lift off it's a few years from now and and the market will have have improved at least that's the conventional wisdom mm. the the, the gap you see, Ben, is their sort of Series B and Series C companies where a company raised a Series A round 18 months ago. They've burned through a fair amount of their cash. They raised mm-hmm. money at a strong valuation. And now they've got the difficult situation where they need to raise money. Perhaps it's a, a down round, mm-hmm. so lower than the last round valuation, or they've they're in a situation where they have a difficult time raising capital because they haven't been able to achieve everything that they set out with the, the Series A capital. So we see a lot of this uh, difficulty in between sort of early stage and later stage companies. And in that situation, Ben, if you've already raised capital, your hope is mm. that your existing investors will step up and support you. So we do what are called you know inside rounds, sometimes a bridge round, uh, you know, with a safe or a convertible note to pull in enough money to extend the company's runway in hopes that in later in 2023 or in 2024, the market gets better for raising capital. Mm. So that, that's what we're seeing right now in, in, in the landscape. I will say, so far at least, it's mm. not as bleak as it was certainly in 2000, 2001, when the dot-com bust occurred uh, for mm. a variety of reasons. And there, there was a, a significant headwinds in the marketplace for technology companies. 2008, 2009 was somewhat different because the epicenter of the downturn was Wall Street. Bear Stearns goes under, Lehman goes under, and it did certainly impact the technology and venture capital market, but in a somewhat uh, different and in in somewhat more muted way. So I'm definitely going to ask you more about macro trends shortly, but you you also touched, you already began touching on these things, but given everything that's happening, how else are founders and companies responding besides, say, down rounds or like uh, they're more conscious about capital that they have? You know, what are some of the things they're facing and the pressures and how they're responding to? Well, as I mentioned, Ben, expense management, cash preservation is um, is absolutely critical right now. So in some cases, companies have pulled back from hiring. OK, mm-hmm. so they're just they're going to hire less or slower. But in, in other cases, they're they're being creative. I was on a board call yesterday. And the entire team is going to take a 20% um, cut in terms of compensation, and they're going to work four days a week. Now, in practice, when companies say they're going to work four days a week, everybody still works the same. Mm-hmm. But it's a way to sort of you know uh, extend their runway and preserve uh, cash. 
The other thing, Ben, I'd say that uh, companies are doing in a, in a down market like this is considering combining forces. So mm-hmm. you'll see two private venture-backed companies agree to join forces, to merge. And if you, if one company's doing, you know, 10 million in revenue and another company's doing, mm. you know, 10 million in revenue and they, they join forces and they become a $20 million revenue company and they can cut out some of the back office expenses and enjoy the synergies that you get in, in, wow. in any combination. So, so in strong markets, we don't typically see that and, and competitors tend to avoid those sorts of conversations. We're seeing quite a few of those right now. And those are not cash deals typically. They're all stock deals where two mm. companies uh, join forces, harmonize their their cap table, as we call it, and they um, get the benefit of two investor groups and, and hopefully a stronger market position by virtue of, uh, of joining forces. Wow. Okay. So uh, besides, you know, being more cash conscious and compensation conscious, they're also going through mergers and consolidations in the industries. Right. Well, and, and I described one that we often will call a merger of equals, even if it's not, in fact, 50-50, it might be 60-40, it might be 70-30. So that's one um, scenario we, we are seeing quite a bit right right now. Another one, Ben, would be uh, tuck-in acquisitions. So mm. if you have, and, and there is an element of sort, the sort of Darwinian part of 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 this sector in capitalism, which is if you have a strong player that's well-funded and you have smaller competitors out there that are struggling or doing less well, the truth is many of them will sort of wave the white flag Mm. and get acquired. In some cases, it truly is a soft landing. It's a, it's a graceful exit. But if uh, the stronger player goes and buys one or two or three of the smaller players in the market, it's another way of consolidation. And the investors in those cases, because they typically aren't going to get much cash out, get an equity position in the buyer, and they hope one day it will be you know, a big success and that they, they get liquidity that way. So even though it's a bet on a different company, that's not a bad outcome necessarily. And there's some great examples in the marketplace where those tuck-ins prove to be highly strategic and critical, but also prove to be... Um, a path to a liquidity or a return for those investors. Wow. So besides these M&A type uh, structures, can you tell us a little bit about what lawyering is like in, in this environment? Like what are some of the things that your clients are calling you up and asking you for advice for as they respond to these pressures? Well, I'll be honest with you. There's a significant part of this job, which mm-hmm. is being, um, you know, priest, rabbi, and shrink. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so what I mean by that is uh, the the you know the the advisory and counseling part of it, which which oftentimes is is very personal. I mean, these are very mm-hmm. difficult times for many companies, and so lawyers in this space uh, tend to be, as we discussed a moment ago, a, a little more than just lawyers. And oftentimes, mm-hmm. we will um, spend time with founders as they uh, deal with very difficult decisions. Uh, for example, you know, two years ago. Our companies weren't laying off people. Uh, mm. They, they uh, were trying to hire people and they were hiring aggressively. And all of a sudden, you have founders and executives that are dealing with tough decisions like that for the first time. So I, I'd say there's there's a, a, a great deal of uh, time spent that is not directly legal work per se and more in the nature of serving as a good sounding board. And and a few weeks ago when when Silicon Valley Bank um, uh, hit, hit the wall. Yeah, it was an incredibly difficult week for us. But that weekend, I, I don't know that I've ever done as many board calls in a three day period. And and that's we all did. Everybody was all hands on deck. That was a existential crisis for for many companies. Longer discussion, of course, but mm. that, but it is been reflective of what you do as a lawyer in a choppy market. And it's great when times are good, but boy, this is not a fair weather fan business and you have to be available. You got to be willing to, um, you know, jump in and be a good listener. Um, and then, and then of course, roll up your sleeves and, and, and help find solutions to, um, survival in, in some cases. Wow. So you talked a lot about the things you're passionate about in this space, but even in, in tough times, you have to also be there in the trenches with the, your clients too, then. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, for, for lawyers, and this applies 
in a really to any type of legal practice, but I think it's particularly true for the technology and venture ecosystem, which is that it's very rare that you are just sort of this dispassionate lawyer who provides and dispenses legal advice when called. It, it tends to be a more linear relationship through the life cycle of the company, through good times, through bad times. You tend to be deeply embedded in the company and the relationship. And so, for example, a few weeks ago, Ben, when the Silicon Valley Bank situation was occurring, I, I was absolutely um, devastated for these companies as they as they struggled with the possibility of missing payroll or maybe going out of business. In many cases, very, very strong companies in a great position, but all of a sudden it was not clear they were going to access their cash. The point there is like that you there is a, a, a great deal of empathy um, and, and the relationships run deep. And so it's not like, oh, well, this is their problem. I hope they can figure this out. It's like, it's your problem too. The other thing, Ben, is in many cases, um, we are the de facto general counsel for these companies. Um, many of the companies we work with don't have a legal department yet. And so, although we are outside counsel, for most lawyers that are focused on emerging companies, you are really part, effectively part of the team. You're part of the inner circle. You're part of the kitchen cabinet. And therefore, you're, you really are sort of on the front lines with them. Well, speaking of that, I'd love to ask you, what, what do you think distinguishes a great lawyer from a good lawyer in this space? I think, Ben, it's as simple as uh, passion and, and uh, EQ. So IQ is out there in, in, in the legal business. There's lots of really smart people, and uh, that's terrific. And you, you, you need to have the technical skills to do this job and to do, to do it well. But I think where lawyers sometimes maybe fall short is um, is on the EQ side, which we've talked a lot about, just in terms of the the human side of the business. And if 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 you really love business, uh, and then you're going to be passionate about this, and you're going to lock arms with these companies, and you're going to really learn their business. And a lot of this, as I tell my students uh, in the class that I teach at, at UVA Law School, is um, is really you learn by osmosis. You know, if you go to a lot of board meetings, eventually you learn about financial statements and you learn about product development engineering and you learn about sales and marketing and go-to-market strategies and all of these things. And so it's really, in, a, in essence, like getting an MBA as a lawyer. And if you just soak this up and really learn your client's uh, business and you're passionate about it, that's pretty much 99% of the game. And, and you'll, you'll sort of stand out um, in this business because, again, many lawyers, I think, sort of view it as, well, I'm, I'm just a lawyer. I, I dispense legal advice. I draft documents. You know, I, I help get transactions closed. And, and they view that as, as their role. And um, there's an opportunity to do, to do way more than that. And a big part of that, as I say, is just the people skills. And being um, uh, passionate uh, about the, the companies you work with, and they, they will see that entrepreneurs in particular, they spot that right away, and they love that. Yeah. Well, so you, you definitely mentioned empathy as a quality. So it sounds like the take you a great lawyer takes the time to really know their client's business, so that they know how to respond accordingly. Yeah. You know. So so Ben, one of the things I would suggest to lawyers out there is. Um, First of all, if you gravitate towards sectors that you're personally interested in, mm -hmm. that is going to be a huge part of your success. So if you love sports and entertainment, try to find a way to do sports and entertainment. If you love health and wellness, if you are a foodie and you love you know, food, I mean, there's egg bio, egg tech, food, mm -hmm. food tech, and, and on and on, there are great examples of lawyers who get to practice in an area that they genuinely love. And so if you're a young person and you are really into crypto and blockchain and you've been, you know, learning how to code and you're then you know what awesome because guess what there's another thing about this business Ben that's amazing which is you can be a young lawyer and develop more expertise than anybody in the country. Wow. What I mean by that is, if, 
if you learn about crypto and blockchain and you think about it, people my age are probably less apt to really understand that and to learn it, you know. Mm. And, and and so it, the cool thing about the technology space is these new sectors emerge and we see people in their 20s and 30s very quickly become the leading experts. And if you think back to, you know, the 70s, and there's the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and, and, and lawyers back then become the leading experts, at a, and then they ride that wave. Mm. For, for Cooley, we have many lawyers that were involved in biotech and life sciences at the infancy of what became a huge sector, and they were able to ride that wave for decades because they were able to learn about a sector that um, blossomed and attract uh, so much capital and continues to attract so much capital. So uh, my advice to lawyers coming out of, of law school is, listen, this may not work for you right away, especially if you go to a large law firm, maybe they don't have the type of areas of interest, but but manage your career, be proactive, look for opportunities to do things that mesh with your own personal interests. And if you can do that, it is um, so much easier to be really good at this when you absolutely love what you do in helping that helping people that are pursuing that same um, area of interest. Well, that's so exciting to hear. And you know, my my, my next question was going to be what qualities make an associate stand out. But you already started talking about it. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Well, look, it's it's the same characteristic that we were talking about with entrepreneurs, mm. when you go to a, a large firm like ours, um, when we see that genuine, sincere, authentic interest in, in what we do, when I say what we do, I don't mean what we as a law firm do, but what we do with our clients for our mm. clients, uh, that really just stands out. So the, the first thing is just the, the sort of sincerity, the authenticity, the the passion, the interest, and then, you know, going the extra mile, right? There's so much you can do um, on your own sort of to to learn and to get up to speed on the business, which really helps you. And in, in, in so, for example, using my cyber and blockchain or crypto example, there's got to be a lot of self-learning in this business. These are not things you necessarily learn in college or in law school. And so you're going to sort of take the time to become a student of the game. And then I would say uh, a willingness uh, maybe to get outside of your comfort zone. So for example, Ben, when somebody comes to me and says, well, I had this happen just in the last week, um, somebody comes to me and says, hey, Mike, I'd like to, to, to join you for um, pitch opportunities. So you're pitching new business, meeting with entrepreneurs, meeting with a, a, a startup or a young company. Hey, can I tag along with you? Can I join in and, 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 and just sort of listen in and, and learn the ropes. Wow. You know, we, we, we love to hear that in our business and we'd like to invite people to do it, but you know, look, especially when we're all busy, it's, it's what we call non-billable time in our business. It's, you know, it's in the last few years when people have been heads down busy, we've been, we meaning lawyers and at, at law firms are reluctant to add to that um, burden um, mm. on young attorneys. And, and yet, um, it is a critical part of on-the-job training. And, and my point, Ben, was when, when somebody raises their hand and says, hey, I'd like to do more board meetings. I would like to join in for more uh, pitches and the like. That, that's the kind of thing that partners at law firms I love to hear. Wow. Okay. Genuine sincerity and showing interest, really, about, about the things that you are doing. Because you mentioned earlier about how really good lawyers are conciliaries. And I always wonder, like, what does that really mean? How do you do it? So you mentioned empathy. The other thing to do is just to show a lot of interest and actually learn about your clients, right? Yeah. And, and you know, to state the obvious, particularly in a market like this, um, a big part of it is is just sort of um, hard work, leaning in, uh, willing to, you know, look, it's, not everything we do in this business is uh, fun and exciting, but, but you, you sort of see... You know, it's it's a little bit like entrepreneurs. You know, if when when entrepreneurs are hiring for their business, 
they look for other executives who, you know, wash the proverbial coffee mugs, you know, people who are willing to, you know, get their hands dirty. And it's a little bit like that in the legal business, which is, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I still sometimes, you know, knock out board resolutions or doing something that's seemingly mundane. And you got to be kind of willing to always jump in and do what needs to be done to meet the deadline. And so I guess that would be sort of a can-do attitude, a, a willingness um, to jump in and, and to not be complaining about doing the small stuff, the little stuff that really just needs to be, be to get done. And in our kind of practice, it's all hands on deck. We all do that stuff. You, you don't, you're not, no one's above washing the proverbial coffee bugs. Right. And if you are going to be, I guess, genuinely sincere and, and authentically interested, it's, it's best to go and learn about the industries that you really are interested in in the first place. It will help a lot then, I guess. Yeah, and Ben, you, when you were talking a moment ago about the little things that, mm. that you might do as a young lawyer, another bit of advice I would share is if you meet a, a company and, and you go learn about, you know, read their business plan, read their deck, mm. dig in on what they're doing and really study it. When you go to meet with a, an entrepreneur and, you've, and you come into that meeting and you're like, hey, I, by the way, I was reading about this company in California, you know, it, it, and they can see that you have gone the extra mile to learn about what they're trying to achieve, to learn about their business. It really stands out because most people just don't take that little bit of extra time. So that, the first thing is sort of do your homework before you meet or before you do a follow-up meeting where you really spend some time and show that level of genuine interest and um, that authenticity and that sincerity. But the other thing, Ben, is to look for opportunities to engage with these companies, even when they haven't called you. So for example, if you periodically touch base with, with a client and you go and you look and you see, oh, they, they're about to do a product launch or they just did a product launch. And if I call somebody up and say, hey, you know, I saw that you just you know, launched uh, the next version of your software. I was wondering if I could swing by and, and, and see a quick demo. Wow. They, they love that. And they've actually never really had lawyers or oftentimes they'll be like, Geez, just the fact that, and, and keep in mind with entrepreneurs, this is their baby, right? They, hmm. they care about their business. They care about their product. They care about their people. Typically, not always, but typically in ways that are very atypical. And, hmm. and so when, when we as lawyers show that level of interest in their company, in their product, in their people, it's like complimenting their children, right? It's, 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 it resonates with them. And so my, my example of, hey, can I swing by to see the product demo is extremely meaningful to them mm. and stands out from the crowd because most people don't take the time to do that. Wow. Wow, such great advice. I so I I have definitely more questions about advice for for law students shortly. But before we go there, I want to ask you about some of the macro trends. So you know you've seen many ups and downs over your career. How does this cycle compare to the previous downturns? Do you see any similarities or differences? And you know where do you think we're heading? Well, I think in terms of the good news, there are almost no sectors then in in the country that are not being disrupted by technology, whether we talk about energy or transportation and you, you know, fashion, food, <laughs> education, financial services. I mean, you're, you know, it's, we're hard pressed not to see opportunities and keep in mind Ben, that 20 or 25 years ago, when people talked about technology, they, they generally thought of software or semiconductors or, or biotech, hmm. but there were all these large swaths of, of the market that were not considered sort of an opportunity for disruption or for technology. Well, so the, the good news for lawyers entering this, entering the marketplace today is there, there just aren't many corners of the economy that are not being massively disruptive by technology. Wow. And, and with disruption comes capital, with disruption comes hyper growth, with disruption comes opportunities for lawyers who specialize in being a part of that. And there's winners and losers, there's risks, there's challenges, of course. But I think the good news for uh, this current sort of soft market is at least it's not as 
limited mm. to a handful of sectors. It is broad and deep, and the dollars involved are are massive, and it's it's still the early innings. So, if, for example, if we look at financial services, uh, what we typically call fintech, fintech has been now around for for a couple of decades. It's by 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 all accounts, we're still in the early innings, and the opportunities for ongoing disruption mm-hmm. in that sector. Uh, we've got you know many many years in front of us, and therefore lots of opportunity, lots of capital that's flowing in. So, so in terms of the good news is, even though this is a painful downturn, like the last few economic downturns, it does seem like there's a much broader swath of opportunity um, for for lawyers and and for law firm. It doesn't so far. It, it's a very odd. Um, market right now because for example uh, unemployment unemployment is still relatively low obviously inflation is high mm. but but it's not like the market has slammed shut the way it did in 2000 2001 there are very few ipos going on right now but there are venture financings being done there are MA transactions being done it, it is not a complete forest fire at the moment <laughs> obviously none of us know what um the market holds for the balance of this year, but there are many prognosticators who think that we are going to avoid a deep recession and that it's at least possible that by Q4, things will sort of turn around, things will pick up. The other observation I would make, Ben, is it is incredible how capital efficient the marketplace is right now. What I mean by that is we see young companies do amazing things with a few million dollars and 15 people. And it used to be the case that if you were raising capital and building a company, you needed to get to 50, 75, 100 people and raise mm-hmm. tens of millions of dollars to tackle some big opportunity. Um, it, for, a, for a variety of macro reasons, it, it is incredibly efficient for many companies to do a lot with relatively little in terms of dollars and mm-hmm. in terms of people. And that too creates great opportunities in the marketplace. Wow, that's a, that's really good insight. So might be a down cycle, but so much to be hopeful for because the opportunity for disruption and to scale is just, it's at a different place right now today than say in 2001, really. Absolutely. Okay, so transitioning to our last segment, advice for law students. Mike, you know, I understand you teach a class at UVA and one of the things you do is give a presentation on advice for law students. Took a look at the presentation and two things really caught my eye. The first thing is you say stress is not the problem, lack of recovery is the problem. And then two, you urge us to develop our, our personal brand and network. Can you help us unpack this a little bit more? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm not a model of the first one, but I've I've learned as I've gotten older how important it is. Uh, so, you know, some th- this actually uh, was in part drawn from uh, a presentation that was made it coolly by a, a Harvard professor um, mm. on the topic of, sort of happiness. And the point about work-life balance is that it's something of a misnomer that you're not going to eliminate stress, like as if we can sort of turn off work, um, you know, Saturday and Sunday, and then turn it back on Monday through Friday or something. It's just not the kind of profession, but be it law, investment banking, accounting, consulting. I mean, the, the professional service industries, like it or not, because of technology and other trends, we are all available all the time. And we, we have mm-hmm. to actively manage that. But, but, but the notion of work-life balance, um, the, the, this professor was sort of guiding uh, us to think about it differently, which is managing stress, not eliminating stress. And mm-hmm. so the example that, that the professor used, uh, every, every, everybody gets sort of the need to take a vacation to really check out and take time off. But, but he was um, advocating based on research and studies, the importance of little breaks, right? So in the mm-hmm. middle of the day, you might take a, a five minute walk or even uh, in the middle of a hairy day, you might just take 30 seconds to look out the window. And it, it sounds kind of hokey, it sounds kind of silly, but the data hmm. uh, suggests that um, managing stress through sort of micro breaks and activities like that 
has a, a pretty profound impact actually on on managing stress on on happiness. So, so the example he used was if you are a race car driver and you think that you can fly around the track and never pull into the pit stop to change your tires or refuel, mm-hmm. you, eventually the car is going to uh, run out of fuel and then the tires are going to burst and you know so every sort of and it but but you you have to pull into the the pit stop. In the refuel, and it had a really uh, big impact on me because I thought to my, I'm one of those people that doesn't pull into the pits up often enough. To take <laughs> Whether it's small, uh, medium, or longer breaks, you, you got to do that. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family. Um, and and so, at least in recent years, I've been um, a big advocate for that approach to work life balance, reducing stress, not eliminating it. Right, because burnout happens to be one of the issues that a lot of lawyers deal with. So it's not really about limiting the stress, but knowing how to recover in order to manage that stress, these small, medium, and long-term breaks you mentioned. Yeah. And we saw during COVID this sort of 24 by seven availability mm. where there were not, you know, when, when we used to go to the office, we, you were working when you were in office and you were not when you were not. It, it, obviously, technology has allowed us to work all the time and for better or worse. And many people would say for worse, but <laughs> we, we've had to learn to adapt. And so, you know, for example, if you send an email on Saturday to a group of people working on a transaction, they might just assume, oh, well, I, I guess Mike's looking for an answer on Saturday. Well, may, maybe we are looking for an answer right away. Maybe we're not. But, you know, could you wait till Monday to hit send on that? Or could you put at the bottom of the email, hey, I'm sending this no, no need to get back to me till Monday. I mean, we're, we've all learned the importance of trying to regulate and manage um, in a world when we're all on 24 by 7. Mm. Okay. Very, very cool. I, the other thing I wanted to mention is you, you mentioned about developing your personal brand and network. So can you unpack that for us? Sure. So I think this is easier for younger people to, to um to develop this skill because of social media. So it used to be the case that your brand was your firm, and that's still mm. true to, to, to a large degree. If you are associated with a firm that does a lot of technology and venture capital, that's part of your, your brand as a lawyer, and that, that association and being part of that team certainly helps. But you, you, you know, if you use LinkedIn and Twitter and other social media platforms, effectively you can have a voice that your clients see and and a following that your clients see and so for me what i post about is about our companies um and i don't uh, have a whole lot to say but i post every day about Mm. what they're doing and they they come to really appreciate it um and they they want to, if we close a financing or we do something in the marketplace, I think most of us now tend to um, tell the world about that. Mm. And that's part of building your personal brand. And if you can go one step further and be somebody that has interesting things to say about companies and about the marketplace, that's even, you know, that, that much better. But you, your generation has the ability to develop this network in part through social media, where you're you're connected to lots of people and they can see this, keeping in mind that 20 years ago, this wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. It wasn't platform and no lawyers engaged in that kind of personal branding. Personal branding would be going to events in the marketplace, like literally showing up and people say, oh yeah, well, I see Mike out all the time and they get to know you, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Now you can supplement that with a m- much more efficient and effective way of advertising yourself and showing that you're sort of plugged in, um, just sort of letting people know about a, a speech you gave or an event you attended or something you did with a client is impactful. Wow, no, that's really, really good. Thank you. So do you think that having a personal brand will, will actually increase in importance over the next decade or so? I do. I, I still think it's a team sport. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think you could take it too far. Um, I know many lawyers who don't use social media and don't quite buy into this sort of personal branding, particularly those of us who are older who think of it as um, egotistical or self-centered or more I than we. 
Um, so I think there's, I think there, you can, I think you can take it too far. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also there has to be substance behind it. If people think you're just out there um, grandstanding and, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of sort of hand waving and a lot of activity, but maybe not a great lawyer or maybe not doing great legal work or maybe not spending time in the office um, doing the things that lawyers are supposed to be really good at. Um, I, I, obviously you can, you can hurt yourself by having a, a brand that is uh, not grounded in substance. Right. So personal branding may be increasing in importance, but doesn't mean you take that time away from building the table stakes that you need to be a good lawyer. I think the other thing for all of us, uh, if, if we have clients that use social media, I know for me, when I see, I, yes, I got together with three clients last night uh, for a drink after work, and um, one of them just spoke at a at a venture conference. And I can, because I saw the post, I can say, "Hey, so tell me, you know, it, it does. It is a nice way to actually stay in touch." Or, "Hey, I saw your daughter graduated from from high school," or you know, all these little things and those personal touches. Going back to the sort of the EQ and the connectedness, you can use social media. And be connected with your clients in a, a very, again, in a sincere and authentic way. Like I'm, I'm interested in some something that just happened in your life, business or personal. And you know, so, for me at least, sort of looking at that before I meet with somebody, maybe scrolling through and look at their recent post, gives me a nice chance to ask them some questions about what's going on in their lives. Wow. So again, genuine sincerity and authentic interests, great themes of this podcast so far. So final question, Mike, you know, knowing everything you know now, if you could go back to say law school or the start of your career, is there anything you would have done differently? Anything you would have changed? You know, Ben, I've, I've been fortunate, as I say, in, in finding a practice area that I, I actually love. I, I love the people I work with. I love what I do every day. I, I sometimes pinch myself and think to myself, aren't I supposed to be tired of doing this after all these years? And Aren't I supposed to, you know, be bored? I'm, I'm not. So I'm, I'm very grateful. I, the only thing I would probably have done differently is probably been more intentional sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for four years and went back to law school. I um, probably, yeah, so it all worked out just fine. But, mm-hmm. but I, I, I suppose I would have made, and knowing that this is really what I wanted to do, maybe I would have jumped right into it, you know, sooner and mm-hmm. been. Um, more deeply embedded in the space um, at, a, at an earlier point in my career. But other than that, um, now in my case, it, it's worked out well. And I, I, I'm still, you know, really grateful to work with these amazing entrepreneurs and amazing people at Cooley every day. Well, that's great. Happy to hear that. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you and I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to season two of the HLEP podcast, probably brought to you by Femic and West or and Cooley. We'd like to thank our sound engineer, Joe Blim, and of course, Mike Lincoln for sharing his time and insights with us. Join us next time for another episode in our Lawyering in a Recession and Emerging Industries series. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thank you and see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.